This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. Enjoy the show. Well, folks, the election took place yesterday, and we still, at the time that I record this video, do not know which party will control the House and which party will control the Senate. But let me just preface this conversation by saying I'm feeling pretty good. I braced for the worst, hoped for the best, and it turned out that the red wave was more of a red trickle. So it did not go the way that a lot of Republicans planned. And there's some key preliminary takeaways that I think are really important. Now, we don't have all of the details about this election, so I'm kind of working with incomplete information, but there are evident things that are really important. But before we get to my five key takeaways, let's get to some results that stand out. First and foremost is John Fetterman defeated Mehmet Oz and Mehmet Oz has called him to concede. This is very important because before Donald Trump can claim that there was fraud, Oz already conceded. This is very good news. And it's also really encouraging to see that voters in Pennsylvania did not fall for a fraud like Dr. Oz, and they didn't use John Fetterman's stroke against him. If you watched my coverage of that debate between John Fetterman and Dr. Oz, I was very, very disappointed because I felt like voters would not see through the dynamic here. You have somebody who isn't necessarily suffering from cognitive issues. It's just an auditory processing problem. I expected voters to use that against John Fetterman, but... He won, and now we have a very progressive senator going to the Senate. Uh, it's just, it's really encouraging to see. Now, some other key races that I want to touch on here. Election denier Doug Mastriano lost the governor's race in Pennsylvania to Josh Shapiro. Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker will be heading to the runoff. It's official, so we won't know the outcome of that race until i believe january jd vance has defeated tim ryan tudor dixon lost the michigan governor's race to gretchen whitmer tim michaels the wisconsin gop candidate for governor who recently said that republicans will never lose another election again if he wins lost to democrat tony evers and at the time that i record this video the race between katie hobbs and the dangerous election denier carrie lake for arizona governor is still too close to call progressive summer lee won her election and she will be headed to congress to represent pennsylvania's 12th congressional district mandela barnes unfortunately lost to ron johnson albeit very narrowly sean patrick maloney the chair of the dccc ended up losing his race for democrats which is embarrassing and this is after he ran in Mondaire jones district effectively pushing him out and so that blew up in his face very embarrassing for him now oregon live has called the state's governor race for tina kotek who was in danger of losing to Republican Christine Drazen due to the presence of a billionaire-funded spoiler in the race, Betsy Johnson. It's still very close. 
it looks like it's headed in Tina Kotek's favor, which is good for me as an Oregon resident. I was worried about this. And Bo Hines, the Republican congressional candidate who recently proposed rape panels as a way of determining whether or not a woman should qualify for an abortion, lost his race. That was basically Madison Cawthorn's mini-me, and he went down. So those are just some results from some key races. Again, we don't know all that there is to know yet. Also really important. I have a video coming out about this. Uh, Lauren Boebert is currently trailing. So it turns out that the polls weren't that far off with regard to Colorado's third congressional district, but more on that later. So first of all, what are my five key takeaways? Things that are just evidently clear from the night. First and foremost, I already kind of alluded to this. The red wave turned out to be a red trickle. Although there's a caveat, we still don't know the results from all of these races. Many counties are still counting, but certainly Republicans did not do as well as they anticipated. Second of all, um, the next takeaway is that the polls, once again, were pretty off, at least at this point in time. And I think this is largely due to younger voters being un underrepresented. Now, usually what pollers do is they will base what the race is going to look like on uh, who's a likely voter. So if you're a voter who voted in the last two elections, then they'll probably say that you're a likely voter. I I'm not necessarily sure what the criteria uh, criteria is. The methodology will, will vary, um, but the polls have been inaccurate. So going forward, I want people to keep that in mind and not base whether or not they think a race is going to go a certain way entirely on polls. And I'm kind of reminding myself this as well, because I tend to uh, look at the polls and view them as more than a gauge on voters and just kind of like look at that as where the election is going. Not always the case. Sometimes they hold, some, sometimes they don't. But polls are not people and real people voting is what is going to make the difference at the end of the day. So this is something that we should account for with our uh, political analyses going forward. Now, my third takeaway is that abortion is a huge winner. Not only did it drive turnout, but voters in Kentucky rejected an amendment to their state constitution stating that there was no right to an abortion or required funding for abortions. Vermont overwhelmingly approved a proposal that creates a constitutional right to reproductive autonomy. Michigan essentially did the same, as did the state of California, and a proposed law in Montana to grant personhood to fetuses at any gestational stage essentially criminalizing abortion is currently losing, although not all of the votes have been counted yet, and it is still relatively close. But where abortion was on the ballot across the country, it won, at least at this time. We don't know for sure if Montana is going to go the way that it's going to go, but it looks really good. So abortion is a huge, huge issue. And in some states like Pennsylvania, I believe that was the number one issue for voters. So Republicans certainly overestimated their confidence there. They thought that the anger for Roe had kind of dissipated, but no, people are still very pissed off that women lost the right to bodily autonomy in this country in many states. So that's key. Now, another takeaway, my fourth takeaway, is that Gen Z absolutely delivered. And going forward, Democrats have got to do more to appeal to younger voters. Alex Clark of The Telegraph called this election a youth quake with Gen Z essentially holding off a Republican wave by turning out in larger numbers. Now, younger voters were motivated by issues like abortion, but also student debt 
cancellation. And even political hacks like David Frum were forced to admit that this was a winning issue after all, tweeting, I thought student debt relief was bad policy and bad politics. I still think it's bad policy, but looking at the youth vote surge, hard to deny its political impact, you think? And if it helped save the country from Trumpism, the positives more than pay for the negatives. I know, shocker, right? Who would think that younger voters would turn out if you have policies that specifically benefit them for once? Now, another thing correlated with student debt relief is that the uh, candidates who publicly distanced themselves from Biden's student debt policy, well, they didn't do too hot. For example, Tim Ryan publicly came out against Biden's student debt plan and he lost to J.D. Vance. Catherine Cortez Masto also publicly opposed Biden's student debt plan, and though the election has not yet been called at the time that I record this video, she is currently losing to Republican Adam Luxalt by three points. Now, I just wanna stress that correlation doesn't necessarily equal causation, but it's very clear that these popular policies that the Democrats stand for, reproductive freedom, student debt relief, these are popular motivators. So Democrats have got to get this through their skulls. Do popular things. Embrace the youth, do what they want, and they will reward you at the ballot box. It's that simple. Democrats also stop running away from popular things. How could you not anticipate that student debt relief would be popular? That's what all the polls showed. And individuals like Tim Ryan and Catherine Cortez Masto ran away from that. And that may have cost him. At least it cost him with the youth vote. Now, the final takeaway that I want to leave you with here, my fifth takeaway, is that even if a lot of election deniers went down, many of them, we're talking hundreds, were successful last night, as Common Dreams reports, 210 election deniers to be exact, they won their races. So across the country, at all levels of governments, election deniers will be assuming power. That is something that is very, very discouraging, we'll say, because even if this election did not go the way that Republicans intended, the fact that election deniers now are in roles of power is something that we have to grapple with as a country. We have to find ways to respond to their lies. But I don't want to be too doomer because overall I'm feeling pretty good about the results. And it seems like the Republicans kind of overplayed their hand, going all in on the culture war and attacking trans people, uh, banning books, trying to ban abortion, control women, deny the election results. It seems like that didn't necessarily pan out too well for them. So I hope that they get the message. Odds are they probably will not get that message and they won't adapt. Either way, this was a better night for Democrats than a lot of people suspected, myself included. And you love to see it. To see Republicans currently coping at the results, uh, that just warms my heart. The red wave that's coming is going to be like the elevator doors opening up in The Shining. <laughs> The Democrats probably should say, you know what? We put too much emphasis on abortion and the threat to democracy and not enough emphasis on kitchen table stuff. Uh, abortion and democracy were the two of the biggest issues with voters. You just saw some pre-election predictions from some very confident Republicans who anticipated a red wave that, as we all know now, 
never actually came to fruition. And what makes their predictions so much better to me is the fact that they were so arrogant. And I hate making political predictions because you really don't know which way the election is going to go. I mean, you can look at polls, but there's so many other factors to take into consideration. So if you're going to make a prediction, at least be a little bit more humble. But no, they were very confident they would sweep, but they didn't. And to be fair, we don't know who's going to control the Senate or the House. Republicans could still take control, but I think that it's fair to say that a lot of people, myself included, expected Republicans to do better. So to see all of that cockiness and arrogance blow up in their faces, it's just really beautiful to watch. But Joe Rogan and the uh, folks that control the Twitter account for The Daily Wire were not alone because other Republicans were very overconfident, including far-right extremist Bridget Gabriel, who tweeted this on November 7th. The color is all red tomorrow. And on election day, she tweeted, Generation Z is destroying the country at the ballot box. Love this. And the day after election, this is what she tweeted, raise the voting age <laughs> to 21. This is P cope folks now fox news posted this on truth social conservatives point fingers at trump after the gop's underwhelming election results quote he's never been weaker now before the election we had this prediction by christopher rufo the left has spent the last two years pushing chaos in our economy critical race theory in our schools and radical gender surgeries onto our children tonight they pay the price mm, didn't happen now elon musk's favorite candidate myra flores tweeted today's forecast red wave and uh on election night she wrote, red wave did not happen. Republicans and independents stayed home. And in all caps, she wrote, do not complain about the results if you did not do your part. Now, perhaps my favorite cope of the night was uh, Charlie Kirk. So during his live stream, they looked utterly distraught and Jack Posobiec looked downright angry. And to make matters worse, their chat was filled with nothing but trolls posting blue wave after blue wave after blue wave. And I have no idea why their viewers would do that. It's not not my style, but I want to post the blue wave emojis just because yeah. I know it would irritate them. No, no, no. They, they, Charlie Kirk is streaming on YouTube right now. You could go and spam mm. his chat if you wanted to. Okay, I like the Charlie Kirk chat is amazing, by the way. I posted the blue waves, yeah. and then now all of them are doing blue. Wave. I started a trend. This is me. Oh, uh, I'm taking yeah. credit for that. We oh did my it, God. folks. Blue wave. Have... Still going. Mike has destroyed Charlie Kirk's chat. <laughs> <laughs> it's just all blue waves now. I'm doing it again. I... <laughs> I'm going to do blue wave. I'm going to do it. Tonight. I just saw you, Matt. We're doing oh, like, I'm, I'm, I'm doing blue waves right now. Hell yeah. Not... Oh, there's Matt Binder. <laughs> this is totally a hate raid. Let's be real. We've taken over the chat. Like, folks, this is amazing. So someone in Charlie Kirk's chat was like, who the fuck are all you fucking Tommies, what is going on? <laughs> Oops. Now, there's some more analyses that I want to get to. Ben Shapiro tweeted out from Red Wave to Red Wedding, and I think that he has probably the most sober analysis of all Republicans, so we'll hear from him uh, more towards the end of this video. But Matt Walsh tweeted out, Most Americans are widely dissatisfied with the direction of the country, but Republicans weren't able to harness that dissatisfaction. That speaks to a party without any kind of coherent or compelling national message. We need new leadership top to bottom. So I'm actually a little bit shocked that Matt Walsh, of all people, had that sharp of a criticism for the GOP's leadership. That's that's shocking because he is a uh, he's a team player, right? He's a Kool-Aid drinker. And it's funny that he says this 
and he makes it seem as if, wow, the GOP should be able to harness this dissatisfaction, not considering, hey, maybe a lot of the dissatisfaction is being driven by the extremism on the right, overturning Roe v. Wade and, you know, going for a total abortion ban, banning books in schools, election denialism. Have you ever stopped to think for a second, Matt Walsh, that maybe you're part of the problem? Because, you know, on the left, we try to have an agenda that is all-encompassing, right? I may not agree with Republicans, but my policies, they would benefit them. Medicare for all, I'd give them healthcare too. I wouldn't leave out Republicans, right? So perhaps if you had a less exclusionary ideology and political orientation, you might do a little bit better. But what do I know? Now, um, probably the most interesting cope of the night was Megyn Kelly, who uh, proclaimed that maybe it's good that Republicans lost in actuality. Whether they win the Senate or not, I don't know, but I, I'll tell you what, I could make a good case if I wanted a Republican president in 2024, that it is better for the GOP to not be in control of both branches of Congress. The more they control, the more they're gonna get blamed. See, I actually wanted them to lose. I'm very satisfied with the results. She's the uh, meme of the smiley face mask with the Wojak crying behind it. Um, I don't believe her. I think that she wanted Republicans to win uh, because if Democrats control both branches of Congress, and again, at the time that I record this, we don't know what's gonna happen. They could, in theory, do more things that are beneficial to young voters and Gen Z and the issue of abortion those were huge motivators for voters. So I don't actually believe that she believes what she's saying. I think that that's cope and she's trying to make herself feel better, but I just disagree. Now, I think that somebody who had the most sober analysis was Ben Shapiro. And for the most part, it's kind of weird to say this, but I agreed with what Ben Shapiro had to say here. Let's watch. This was not only not a red wave. It was not a red tide. It was barely a red trickle. Barely, barely, barely a red trickle which means heads should roll. When your football team is expected to go 16 and 0, it's one thing if your football team then proceeds to go 14 and 2 or 10 and 6. If your football team proceeds to go 8 and 8, people get fired. The entire coaching staff, the entire leadership team in the Republican Party needs to go and it needs to go now. now I spoke to the Republican House Caucus back in 2021. And I said to them, if somehow you fail to take the House, given the conditions that you have been given, every one of you ought to lose your jobs. Well, they're barely going to take the House. And I mean, barely, barely, barely going to take the House. The current estimate suggests that Republicans are going to win somewhere between eight and 15 seats in the House. They started off with 212. That means they will end up on the low end at 220, at a 435, which means that they would have a five seat majority in the House after starting with just a 10 seat minority in the House. That is an extraordinarily crappy result. In the Senate, the Republicans look like they are going to be on the losing edge of this one. Basically, the entire Senate comes down right now to Georgia, where it looks like there will be a runoff between Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock. Arizona, not all the votes are in because apparently all the votes in Arizona are counted by a single blind nun working in Mozambique. And so we have to take at least seven years to count all the votes in Arizona. And the same thing holds true in Nevada. If you have to ballpark the outcomes of those races right now, what you would figure is that Republicans, in order to gain control of the Senate, would need to take two out of those three. Republicans, I think, may still take Nevada. It looks as though they're going to lose Arizona. And that runoff with Herschel, we're going to get another Senate runoff in Georgia, this time featuring the extraordinarily flawed candidacy of Herschel Walker against Raphael Warnock in an off-year election where Brian Kemp is not on the ballot to drag 
Herschel Walker up ballot. These are crap results, guys. These are bad results. I'm not going to sugarcoat stuff. I'm not going to pretend that this is a, a wonderful evening for Republicans or even that it's a good evening for Republicans. It was a garbage evening for Republicans last night. I don't say this very often, but Ben Shapiro is absolutely correct. And look, I know that the bar is really low, but I appreciate him using data and actual election results for his analysis rather than just saying, oh, it was stolen. And in fact, it's nice to see that at least at this point in time, there aren't widespread claims of fraud. Now, if Kerry Lake loses in Arizona, maybe that changes. If Lauren Boebert loses in Colorado, maybe that changes. But, you know, Donald Trump was already fear-mongering about Pennsylvania. If Oz lost, he, you know, was conspiracy-mongering about how that would be fraud. Tucker Carlson was doing that too. Dr. Oz already conceded. So I like that the fingers are being pointed at Donald Trump, and in some instances, inward at GOP leadership, as opposed to them crying fraud. Now, maybe we're not seeing widespread claims of fraud because more than 200 election deniers won their races. So that might have something to do with it. They like the results. Therefore, they're not going to claim that they're rigged. Um, either way, I've got to say that after Republicans were so cocky and arrogant, it's really nice to see them eat shit right now. And I'm not usually that type of a person, but I'm sorry. You all have been so disgusting, so nasty that I'm going to be a bitter little petty bitch right now. You all deserve this. You deserve to lose. The way that you went, ever, uh, went after marginalized people, the way that you have become increasingly fascistic in your orientation, banning books in schools, targeting marginalized people, uh, denying the results of elections, you absolutely deserved to eat shit in this election cycle. You know, people like Joe Rogan was so confident that the COVID policies of the, uh, of the Democratic Party would lead to their destruction. That didn't happen. So maybe be a little bit humble and introspective and question whether or not your extremist beliefs really are as popular as you think that they are. So I think it's safe to say that a lot of us were pretty surprised by the election results from last night. I certainly was. Perhaps Michael Moore is the only person in the country who was not surprised because he predicted this result. And, you know, Republicans, they could still take back the House. But the red wave that a lot of people were anticipating based on polls essentially did not materialize. And there's a lot of Republicans who are angry about this. But perhaps nobody is more mad than Donald Trump because he had a lot riding on this, namely his reputation and he endorsed a lot of candidates who he was hoping would win because their victories would kind of solidify his influence and presence within the Republican Party. And he's about to announce next Wednesday on the 15th. And now, not really seeming like it's the best time to announce. And as a result, he is reportedly very, very mad that the election did not go his way. As Insider reports, former President Donald Trump is livid and screaming at everyone after many Republican candidates backed by him underperformed in Tuesday's midterm elections, an advisor to Trump told CNN. Trump had endorsed more than 330 GOP candidates running for both state and federal office in this election cycle, but a much-anticipated red wave of Republican victories never came in the fight for control of Congress. Candidates matter, the Trump advisor, who was not named, told CNN on Wednesday, adding, they were all bad candidates. Yeah, and I think that that's pretty much what everyone could see. You can try to claim fraud, as I suspect Trump will do, but when you look at Herschel Walker, somebody who supposedly 
pro-life, i.e. forced birther, but had multiple abortions that he paid for. Uh, when you see someone like Dr. Fa uh, Oz, who's a fraud, I almost said Dr. Fraud, but you get what I'm saying. When you see somebody who is a fraud like that, endorsed by Donald Trump, I mean, you just, you didn't pick your best. The GOP didn't send their best. And even Mitch McConnell said that the quality of candidates was pretty bad. Now, Maggie Haberman of the New York Times, who has a source within Trump's circle, said this via Twitter. Trump is indeed furious this morning, so she's confirming these reports, particularly about Mehmet Oz, and is blaming everyone who advised him to back Oz, including his wife, describing it as not her best decision, according to people close to him. Wow. There are people pushing Trump to reschedule his announcement next week, and several Republicans have texted asking whether he will, but it's risky and would be acknowledging he's wounded by yesterday, something that some of his advisors insist is not the case. Worth remembering that Trump is a grown man who endorsed Oz over the objection of some of the people closest to him and instead went beyond just endorsing and attacked Dave McCormick from the stage at a rally. So if his candidates who were bad candidates ended up winning because of his endorsement, he'd have a lot of momentum going into next Wednesday when he's set to announce his next presidential run. But given that so many of his choices flopped, it doesn't look great. So will he or won't he announce? He's already sending out the invites to a lot of individuals. So we'll just have to wait and see. I hope that he postpones his launch because honestly, I'm not really ready to see all of that nonsense again this soon. Although it's coming, it's inevitable, but I hope he postpones. Either way, there's a lot of Republicans playing the blame game right now, and a lot of them are pointing fingers at Donald Trump. For example, Fox News posted this on Truth Social, actually. Quote, conservatives point finger at Trump after GOP's underwhelming election results. Quote, he's never been weaker. They also published this opinion piece by Liz Peake titled, Ron DeSantis is the new Republican Party leader. Republicans are ready to move on without Donald Trump. Now, in addition to that, Ben Shapiro tweeted, Trump picked bad candidates, spent almost no money on his handpicked candidates, and then proceeded to crap on the Republicans who lost and didn't sufficiently bend the knee. This will have 2024 impact. Now, Matt Walsh chimed in saying the Republican Party outside of Florida has no message, no discipline, no leadership, no courage to confront the important issues head on. That's why they're losing to literally brain damaged candidates. We need a total overhaul. So many Republicans are either directly attacking Trump or they're heavily implying that Ron DeSantis is the individual who has created a blueprint electorally for them going forward and they should go with him not Donald Trump. That's why Matt Walsh emphasized the Florida Republican Party. So Trump has got to be feeling really vulnerable right now to Ron DeSantis or Ron DeSanctimonious, as he wants to call him, because his choices, his endorsements, they flopped. The most high-profile ones did, namely Dr. Oz. And on top of that, a lot of people are now looking to Ron DeSantis, who is performing better. But Trump decided to take to Truth Social and explain why mm, maybe he's still better than Ron DeSantis, writing, now that the election in Florida is over and everything went quite well, sure, shouldn't it be said that in 2020, I got 1.1 million more votes in Florida than Ron DeSantis got this year, 5.7 million to 4.6 million, question mark, just asking.
So the red wave not materializing is good in and of itself. That's satisfying for me to see. But the cherry on top is the fact that Trump is feeling really insecure right now. He feels like Ron DeSantis is stepping on his toes. And a lot of Republicans are looking towards Ron DeSantis as opposed to Donald Trump. Now, there are some Trump loyalists who aren't blaming Donald Trump. Marjorie Taylor Greene, for example, is speaking out against the other individuals in the Republican Party who are placing the blame on these election losses on Donald Trump. But either way, you have Republicans butting heads right now, possibly factionalizing in a DeSantis camp and a Trump camp. And this is really, really good to see ahead of the 2024 election. So I'm not necessarily sure if this will directly affect Donald Trump's announcement next week. But either way, to know that he is screaming at everyone behind the scenes and he's really upset about this and he feels insecure. This makes me very, very happy. So, um, yeah, I'll leave that there. Donald Trump is coping and uh, molding and good. I hope he has a really bad day because he's a bad person and he's a threat to democracy. So any loss for him is a win for U.S. democracy. Billionaire Elon Musk has had a brutal couple of weeks following his takeover of Twitter, and I think that it's abundantly clear that he's in over his head, and he has no idea what he's doing, and I think it's just hilarious to watch. First of all, after laying off around half of Twitter's workforce, the company actually reached out to dozens of employees that they had laid off, asking them to return to work, claiming that the layoffs were a mistake, sure. Now, also, advertisers have fled the platform following a surge in racial slurs and also their new owner tweeting out misinformation probably had something to do with that as well but more on that later because the biggest problem for elon musk is apparently hurt fifis yeah so the biggest change that he's making is he's revising twitter's tos or the rules maybe not the tos itself but he's certainly making changes to the rules after a comedian made fun of him and he didn't like it. So Kathy Griffin, she changed her Twitter profile name to Elon Musk and she began to make fun of him by impersonating him. That led to her getting suspended and Elon Musk tweeted this after her suspension. Going forward, any Twitter handles engaging in impersonations without clearly specifying parody will be permanently suspended. Previously, we issued a warning before suspension, but now we are rolling out widespread verification. There will be no warning. This will be clearly identified as a condition for signing up to Twitter Blue. Any name change at all will cause temporary loss of verified checkmark. And that last point, Temporary loss to verified checkmark is probably him trying to sell Twitter blue and encourage people who already are verified to pay. So if you revoke verification, then perhaps maybe you get a couple of suckers to pay. But effectively, what he's doing here is he's cracking down on comedy. Now, let me remind you what Elon Musk said when he just bought Twitter. He announced comedy is now legal on Twitter. And back in 2021, he advocated for comedy to be legalized which I, I guess that means on Twitter. Um, I, I haven't heard about the ban on comedy per se, but I mean, certainly on Twitter, it's not allowed at least when it comes to impersonating its owner, Elon Musk. Now, after Kathy Griffin was banned and Elon Musk made this announcement, well, H3, H3 Productions decided to follow his guidelines very carefully. So they changed their name to Elon Musk and adopted an Elon Musk profile picture. And in the header of their page, they clearly labeled that 
a parody account. But despite the fact that they made it very clear that it was a parody, perhaps the tweets about Jeffrey Epstein were just a little bit too much for Elon Musk to take, so they were suspended as well. Although I haven't actually been banned for very seriously inquiring about whether or not we can post this photo of him with Ghislaine Maxwell, I'll report back to you if anything changes, but for now, seems like that's still allowed. But that may soon change if he gets in his head and gets in his feelings and feels a little bit angry that people are posting that photo, which not a good look for him, right? He was photobombed, bro. That's what people respond saying. There's so many simps on Twitter still for Elon Musk. It's hilarious. Uh, but he very clearly is scrolling through, looking at people who are making fun of him, steaming, and then they're getting banned. The fact that the richest man on the planet is doing this, he's that online and he can't log off of Twitter and is getting personally offended by people impersonating him to the point where he's changing Twitter's rules is just so hilarious to me. Now, journalist Scott Nover points to an interview that he did with Elon Musk for The Atlantic back in 2019. And this quote is really interesting to me from Elon Musk from that particular interview where he says, accurate and entertaining satire is vital to a functioning democracy, Musk told told me on a phone call late Sunday night. Unless it's about me, he joked. Mm, turns out he was dead serious about that. Now, we already have established that Elon Musk is a thin-skinned man-baby, but I think that what establishes that fact even more is um, this, where an advertiser who he seemingly spoke to tried to reach out in earnest to give him advice on how to attract advertisers back to the platform, and the way that it ended is pretty predictable given Elon's behavior as of late, but let's get to this. So Lou Pascalis, a brand marketer, actually responded to Elon Musk after he complained about a drop in Twitter revenue due to activists pressuring Twitter's advertisers, which I don't think is true, by the way. But he offered Musk some additional advice after chatting with him personally. He wrote, Elon, great chat yesterday. As you heard overwhelmingly from senior advertisers on the call, the issue concerning us all is content moderation and its impact on brand safety and suitability. You say you're committed to moderation, but you just laid off 75% of the moderation team. He continues, advertisers are not being manipulated by activist groups. They are being compelled by established principles around the types of companies they can do business with. These principles include an assessment of the platform's commitment to brand safety and suitability. Now, I feel like this is common sense information. It doesn't take a brand marketer to explain this to you, at least for someone like me, I've been on YouTube for a very long time. I remember Adpocalypse in 2017 after there were Coca-Cola commercials for very unsavory content. And so we all know what advertisers are looking for. But Elon Musk apparently doesn't get that and he doesn't want to hear that because in response to Lou trying to give him genuine advice, well, Elon Musk blocked him. Lou tweeted, So for all the replies I received that content moderation equals denial of freedom of speech, it doesn't. What do you say about the fact that the chief twit just blocked me for exercising mine? So you have this brand marketer who's actually trying to give him advice to stop the company from hemorrhaging advertisers, and Elon Musk blocked him. Now, to be fair, Lou knows people who work at Twitter. So the people who work at Twitter, who Lou knows, convinced Elon to unblock him. So it ended with a happy ending, apparently, for Lou. But his instinct was to block the person who's trying to give him real advice. I mean, the richest man on the planet has single-handedly proved that anyone who's a billionaire is not by definition a genius. And a lot of them, especially if their names are Elon Musk, 
are very, very thin-skinned to an embarrassing point. Look, I've been doing YouTube videos for a very long time, so I have a sense of what it's like to be a public figure. Not to the extent that Elon Musk is, to be fair, but you can't just log on and search for people who are criticizing you constantly respond to people who are criticizing you because that's going to drive anyone crazy regardless of how much money you have and eventually you see it and you adapt and it doesn't affect you that much but elon musk is such a huge man child that even after all these years of being a public figure after having more money than any other human being on the planet he's still really really sensitive about people making fun of him and that's just so hilarious and sad to me but i've got to say and i pointed this out on twitter i don't think twitter has been this fun since trump got covid when everyone was just laughing and shitting on one person that's happening again all because elon musk decided to invest in a company i think irresponsibly so that isn't making money and he's desperately trying to turn it into a money-making venture for himself and rather than championing free speech, he's championing $8 speech. And I don't think that that's going to go particularly well, but we'll see. Either way, this is a train wreck, and I honestly can't look away. I haven't had this much fun on Twitter in a very long time. And I, uh, I plan to continue to laugh at Elon Musk until he ruins the entire website, which I didn't necessarily think was plausible. I didn't actually anticipate that much changes, but seeing his first couple of weeks, oh no, he wants to change a lot. And it's just... Okay, whatever. I think that if Twitter goes the way of the dodo, that might be a net benefit for humanity. Either way, it's just hilarious that it's all happening because of this thin-skinned idiot who got overconfident and wanted to be a hero, so he bought Twitter, and now it's not going his way. So he's melting down and banning anyone who makes fun of him. Just hilarious. These are your free speech champions, folks. So a couple of weeks ago on the program, I talked about how I was shocked that Ben Shapiro publicly denounced Candace Owens after she decided to defend Kanye West following his DEFCON 3 tweet about Jewish people. Now, Ben Shapiro is somebody who platforms a lot of very, very despicable individuals, one of them being theocratic fascist Matt Walsh, and this is what he self-identifies as, and another individual is Candace Owens. So after giving these folks a platform and boosting their careers, it's nice to see him at least denounce them when they say things that are explicitly disgusting and grotesque, sometimes at least. He agrees with Matt Walsh on a lot of his attacks on trans people, so he's not going to speak out there, but thankfully Ben Shapiro, because he's Jewish himself, does condemn anti-Semitism, which is nice. I just wish that he would extend his clear on the issue of Kanye's anti-Semitism to other areas where marginalized people are being attacked and hate crimes are on the rise, such as trans rights, but you can't expect that much from a right-wing propagandist. Either way, I gave him credit where it was due for condemning Candace Owens. But now it seems as if things have only deteriorated because they're essentially publicly feuding now. So Candace Owens responded to a tweet from Grey Zone grifter Max Blumenthal, which reads, We white American Jews are living through a golden age of power, affluence, and safety. Acceptance of this welcome reality threatens the entire Zionist enterprise from lobby fronts like the ADL to the state of Israel because Zionism relies on Jewish insecurity to justify itself. Now, I don't necessarily know what he's trying to say exactly, but it seems like that first sentence in particular is him trying to lend credence to this claim that Kanye West is correct, or at least that's how Candace Owens is interpreting this, seemingly. So, 
This is what she said in response. You were about to get into a lot of trouble for saying this. Reminds me of when I said something similar about the NAACP and BLM way back when. When you disrupt the trauma economy and call out the not-for-profits that benefit from it, you become their next target. Now, Ben Shapiro saw her response to Max Blumenthal and he decided to attack them both. Not necessarily attack Candace Owens, but criticize her for associating with him. He writes, I think the ADL is a partisan hack organization too, but retweeting Max Blumenthal, who spends his life covering for Jew haters and stumbling for Israel's destruction, makes the conversation significantly worse. It's garbage. Now, I think that he is referring to the fact that Max Blumenthal is a critic of the Israeli government. And... I would agree with Max Blumenthal there. I think that the government itself is overseeing an apartheid regime, and I think that that is absolutely disgusting. However, I disagree with this notion that Jewish people are at a period, like this golden era of power and whatnot, like anti-Semitism and hate crimes against Jewish people. It's on the rise, so I don't agree with him there. But when it comes to the Israeli government... I agree with Max Blumenthal there, but seemingly Ben Shapiro does not agree with him on that particular issue. Uh, and because of that, well, he's kind of throwing Candace Owens publicly under the bus. And she did not take kindly to this because she actually responded to Ben Shapiro there saying, I don't know who Max Blumenthal is, but I do know that you have my number and could have informed me in earnest. Real relationships should trump Twitter theater. Let's set a better example going forward. So she's accusing Ben Shapiro, who I believe is her boss, of doing Twitter theater. Essentially, she's saying he's virtue signaling by publicly calling her out when he could have just called her. And to that, I think that she has a point. There's no reason to publicly beef with someone who you're aligned with and is a co-worker of you or a subordinate, presumably, because he runs the Daily Wire. She has a show on the Daily Wire. So there's no reason why you can't just talk to each other. But I'm glad that he didn't, and I'm glad that he's choosing to make this public because I think that infighting on the right is a net good for humanity because of all the disinformation and lies that they peddle. So whenever they're batting each other, butting heads, I think that's better because they're not spending that time, uh, you know, lying about trans people or spreading misinformation about the elections. Although Ben Shapiro, his hands are clean there, but individuals like Candace Owens does promote these lies. Now, this is not the first time that Ben Shapiro has condemned Candace Owens publicly. I talked about the first time that he did this, but also one instance where he did this that I didn't cover on my program, although we talked about this on Twitch, is where he publicly said something that um, is a pretty sharp criticism of Candace Owens. He is an anti-Semite. He's saying lots and lots of anti-Semitic things. I, I'm not sure what more there is to say about that. The only thing I might add is that he's pretty obviously bipolar, and I would think that right now he looks like he's in the middle of a manic episode. I only say that because I have members of my family who have been bipolar and have had manic episodes, and one of the characteristics of a manic episode is that everything that comes out of your mouth you think is a wonderful idea, even when everyone around you is telling you to stop. Uh, which seems pretty obvious because he uh, continues to destroy his career and uh, his wealth base based on his own foolishness, malice, and bigotry. Uh, so, you know, that's all I have to say about Kanye. Uh, I will say that I'm amused by some of his theories. I have, I have some questions about some of his theories. Uh, I mean, namely, his, uh, his, his theory that, that the Jews perverted Kim Kardashian is a weird one. Uh, <laughs> I have lots and lots of questions about, about how that happened. He actually, I think his line was that 
that Kim Kardashian was a wonderful Christian mother of four black children, and then the Jews perverted her. And I seem to remember Kim Kardashian before she was a beautiful Christian mother doing <laughs> some things. As far as defending her, I don't think that anybody should be defending her. You know, my, my friend Candace Owens is friends with Kanye. She initially gave a response. Candace is great, but she, she initially gave a response that I thought was uh, pretty wrong, uh, both uh, morally and sort of logically. But we allow disagreement at the Daily Wire, even when I think that some of my colleagues are wrong. If she had said, let's put it this way, if she had said what Kanye had said, she wouldn't be working at the Daily Wire. She did not say what Kanye said. Instead, she defended her friend initially in a way that I didn't like, but that is not a fireable offense, nor do I even have the power of firing at the Daily Wire, which is why Michael Moles still works there. Ha 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 Look, to be fair, Ben Shapiro was actually being pretty reasonable and somewhat, dare I say, funny there. Uh, genuinely so, and I think it's because he's actually being honest and not lying or trying to go out of his way to do propaganda. But he says there very clearly that if Candace Owens said what Kanye West said, she would not be working at the Daily Wire. But he claims that he doesn't have the power to fire anyone, but she just would not have been hired in the first place. But essentially what he's communicating here to the audience is that he disagrees with what uh, Kanye West said so vociferously that he would not associate with someone who said that. So it's got to really bug him that she defended someone like Kanye West. And I understand why he wouldn't want someone who he's a colleague with to defend that overt anti-Semitism because it is overt anti-Semitism and anyone who denies that is just lying. They're being purposefully obtuse or they're anti-Semitic themselves and they like that Kanye West is saying terrible things about Jewish people. But I've got to say, look, to be perfectly honest here, I don't care about the substance of this story one bit. What I care about is that the right is factionalizing and that is really, really important, not just for the left, but for America. See, over the weekend, Donald Trump also criticized Ron DeSantis and referred to him as Ron DeSanctimonious, which is not Trump's best work, but I'm glad that he did that because after he did that, individuals like Matt Walsh and other right-wingers decided to criticize Donald Trump for being divisive. And for the first time, perhaps in years, we're starting to see real cracks form on the right. And there's been real solidarity among fascists. So the infighting is something that I just didn't anticipate. But the fact that it's happening is very important because if the right begins to factionalize in the way that the that the left has factionalized, at least the online left, then I think that this is very, very good because usually they put aside their differences and all of the dis these disagreements that they have, they try to, you know, quell them quietly. But now things are getting so ugly, lines are being drawn so clearly that you have Daily Wire colleagues going after each other. And that is very important. You have 2024 presidential candidates going after each other. And I think that that's very important. So wherever there is right wing infighting, I'm going to celebrate that because these individuals pose a real threat to democracy. They pose a threat to the planet by obstructing climate change. So if their propagandists are publicly battling each other, if their high-profile politicians and rising stars are publicly battling each other, it's just cause for hopium. And I think that when there's so many bad news going around, we've got to celebrate the small victories. And seeing public disputes between these propagandists who I loathe, 
I think that is a pub, uh, th that is a small victory. I think that is something that we should celebrate. So there you have it. You know, it's a small victory, but it's a victory nonetheless. Anytime these ghouls go after each other and rip each other apart, I say let them fight. After effectively admitting that he lied about schools putting litter boxes in bathrooms to appease cat-identified students in order to fearmonger about where acceptance of trans people can take us, Joe Rogan actually did something very good. He tried to right the wrong, and he brought on a pediatrician well-versed in treating adolescents with gender dysphoria, and it was a very informative conversation. I'm, of course, making all of this up. He made matters worse after admitting that he lied by bringing on self-described theocratic fascist Matt Walsh. Because what else would you expect from Joe Rogan? When I saw that he brought on Matt Walsh, my response was, this was on my 2022 bingo card because this individual has repeatedly spread misinformation, not just about trans people, but about COVID-19 vaccines, about basically everything now. So it's not that surprising that after messing up and admitting to messing up, he makes matters worse by bringing on a well-known hate monger and propagandist who also, I might add, defended a pedophile named Josh Duggar and claimed that child marriages should be a thing, or I should say implied that child marriages should be a thing. But one thing about this that I do find interesting is that Matt Walsh made a claim that's wrong, predictably so, on Joe Rogan's podcast. And Joe Rogan wasn't smart enough to fact check him, but Joe Rogan's producer, Jamie, decided to do that and he just debunked Matt Walsh in real time, and it was beautiful to watch. Matt Walsh didn't really know how to recover from that, and neither did Joe Rogan, but uh, let's watch. You know, there aren't, like, child endocrinology clinics barely exist anymore because they've all become transgender. They've, they've all, that's, this is what they do now. There, there, there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of people, doctors who got into the medical field and they did a certain thing, and then the transgender stuff came along, and that's and that's their whole that's what they do. Well, it's the same for a lot of plastic surgeons. That this is this is basically their whole business now, is doing the gender surgeries. Um, and so you see the incentive for them. I mean, they've they've they have staked everything on this. They've also staked their professional reputation, because that's the other problem. Not only is it the political incentive and the money, but if they admit that they're wrong, then they're also admitting that they have horribly disfigured and abused thousands maybe millions of kids how many people have had this done depends on what i don't think we have exact numbers but it's if we're talking about the drugs it's i mean millions um do you talking uh, about hormone blockers yeah millions blockers of kids have been on hormone blockers really uh I, i'm sure someone's going to fact check me on me but my 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 guess is that we're in we're into the millions now at this point yeah that would be my guess um uh i i can say for double mastectomies, the most I read a report recently that um, there were over a thousand done between 2016 and 2019, and when you compare that to how many were done between you know 2008 and 2015, it's just a, it's a massive increase. And uh, a th over a thousand girls had double gender, gender affirming double mastectomies in that in that time frame. And when and, you but say that's, girls, that's, you're talking about prepubescent, right? Minors, uh, and that's just up until 2019, and then we know that uh, there's been this exponential increase with all this stuff year over year. So um, it's it's a lot. It's too many. You know, one having this happen to one kid is way too many. It's a lot more than one. Yeah. Look, if you're an adult and you want to do that, and you understand who you are and what you are, and this is how you feel you should progress, you're an adult. This is a free country. You should be able to do whatever you want. 
But when you're talking about doing that to children, the fact that so many people are on board and so many people are angry, if you have, like, people are going to be angry at us that we're having these conversations. Yeah, they will be. And I, and I also, I, I actually think that uh, that that this shouldn't this shouldn't be happening to. It's a very small number, if that's right. It I'll says kind of... over the last five years, there were at least 4,780 adolescents who started puberty blockers and had a prior gender dysphoria diagnosis. This says it's kind of undercounted, but that's... That would be a big undercounting. Less than 1,000 people a year. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I would guess, you know, hundreds of thousands at this, but I could be wrong. Million sounds great. <laughs> yeah, I could be wrong. Yeah. Um, the media matters will have a fun with that clip. Yeah. Matt Walsh claims it. Uh, but part of the problem, though, is that we don't it's, – it's very hard to get numbers on any of this stuff. And, and who, you know, who are you going to trust when they're telling you the numbers? So that's, that's one of the issues. I'm not sure if you caught it at the end there, but Joe Rogan said that the millions number sounds better effectively admitting that he has an anti-trans agenda because if you inflate the numbers then it further proves your point that gender affirming care for trans youth is bad and it's growing because it's this business as matt walsh alluded to listen if you're actually worried that doctors pediatricians in particular have a monetary incentive to transition children which there's no evidence for that but if you're worried about that then join me in calling for the complete decommodification of u.s healthcare. Do you support Medicare for all where it's free at the point of service and the government foots the bill? Oh, you don't support that. Right. So you think that healthcare should be a profit based industry where the goal is for hospitals and insurance companies to make money and not to provide people with treatment. Because if you were genuinely concerned about the trans industry that these imbeciles always talk about, then you would support the decommodification de of healthcare, but they don't. Now, I love how after he was fact-checked, Matt Walsh said, well, you know, who, uh, who are you going to trust? Uh, not the person who was just fact-checked. I'll tell you that. Not the person who goes out of his way to lie about gender-affirming care for trans youth. He has claimed multiple times that children are being mutilated. This is a stochastic terrorist who incited violence against the Boston's Children's Hospital. And Joe Rogan brought him on his show to uh, do even more harm, I guess. But there were so many cues there just with that small clip that we watched that neither of them knew what they were talking about. There's a lack of clarity that's very obvious. So they talked about the, or Matt Walsh, before he was fact-checked by Jamie, talked about the millions of kids who he guessed were on puberty blockers. But first of all, notice how whenever puberty blockers are brought up, it's only within the context of gender affirming care, but they never talk about all of these cis kids that are given puberty blockers. Young girls, for example, may be given this to stop them from developing too soon, to stop them from getting their period too soon. So it's, it's, it's astonishing to me that they talk about the dangers of puberty blockers, but they don't talk about cis kids. So if you're genuinely concerned about the side effects of medication, which all medications have side effects. So that's not necessarily an illegitimate concern. You would talk about the way that this affects cis kids as well, because cis kids have been getting puberty blockers, but they don't do that. And on top of that, when the conversation of double mastectomies came up, well, Joe Rogan said, wait, are these being given to prepubescent girls? To which Matt Walsh said, yes, but moved the goalposts. He said, yes, 
right to minors. That's what he said in particular, right minors. But that's not what Joe Rogan asked. He didn't ask if these were being given to minors. He asked if they were, they were being given to prepubescent girls. And just stop and think about that for a moment. Joe Rogan, who has a podcast that is broadcasted to millions of people, just seriously asked if prepubescent girls are getting double mastectomies. Why would a prepubescent girl who has not developed breasts yet get their breasts removed? What the fuck are you even talking about? It's genuinely idiotic. These are the people who believe that they can speak with authority on this issue that they know nothing about. Now, Joe Rogan later on talked about how, is there any long-term studies about this? Now, he was specifically referencing puberty blockers and double mastectomies for the rare instances where they happen to minors. But there are long-term studies, not necessarily with regard to that, but long-term studies about gender-affirming care being prescribed for minors. And guess what? The overwhelming majority of them, they stick with their gender identity, indicating that these doctors who are treating these children with gender-affirming care are getting it right. And double mastectomies are very rare, but when they do happen, that is a decision that is made in concert with that child, their parent, and the doctor, and it's a case-by-case -case thing. You can't just on a Tuesday declare that you're trans, and then on a Wednesday, get a double mastectomy. That's not the way that it works. To even get puberty blockers to qualify for that, that requires a lot of therapy. That requires a lot of decisions to be made, a lot of steps to be taken before that by the doctor and the child. And if these doctors were getting this wrong and over-diagnosing people with gender dysphoria when they didn't have that, then the detransition rate would be very high. But the fact that it's so low tells us that doctors are pretty cautious. They're pretty conservative already in their handling of children with gender dysphoria. It's just that this is a political issue and propagandists like Matt Walsh are using Joe Rogan's platform to push hysteria over this because it's politically beneficial to them. Because, you know, when you're a right winger, you can't necessarily sell working class people on more trickle down economics and austerity. I mean, you could try certainly, but it's much, much more persuasive to make it seem as if we're mutilating children in this country to galvanize people to vote than to actually bring an economic message. And it's funny that we didn't see in that clip, but Matt Walsh frequently will talk about how the genitals of children are being mutilated, which is not true. Children don't get bottom surgery, but he doesn't bring up the alarmingly high circumcision rate, which is done to male infants before they can consent. Where's the outrage there, Matt Walsh? Why aren't you concerned about them? There's no outrage. And before he was fact-checked, it seemed as if Matt Walsh was going to say or admit that he didn't believe adults should be able to transition as well. But I love one thing that Joe Rogan said there. And when I say love, I obviously am being sarcastic. He said, people are going to be angry at us that we're even having these conversations. It's because you don't know what you're talking about, Joe Rogan. You could bring on a pediatrician who's well-versed in treating patients with gender dysphoria, but you don't do that. You bring on the propagandists who make it their careers to fearmonger. Like we're talking about a monetary incentive here. Joe, uh, Matt Walsh is getting lots of money for people who watch his documentary. If you rent that, that goes to him. So he has a monetary incentive to spread fear about trans people. So why would you bring on the propagandist as opposed to the expert? It's because Joe Rogan is an asshole. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Joe Rogan is not bringing on someone who's intellectually curious, who's open-minded, who's objective, who's actually interested in the truth. He's bringing on a propagandist 
And if he knows that people are going to be mad that he's even having this conversation with Matt Walsh, which nobody is surprised by, by the way, but if you know that people are going to be mad, then you know, you're at least self-aware enough to know that people believe you are doing harm. So are you not even a little bit curious as to what their arguments are? Are you not at least a little bit introspective or introspective enough to maybe think, okay, if I'm this confident that trans uh, healthcare is bad, maybe I should bring on someone to debate. He's not. Joe Rogan just, he's not. He's just functionally a right-wing propagandist at this point in time. I think that the ghost of Rush Limbaugh has possessed Joe Rogan, and he's now just a propagandist for the right. And it's really frustrating to see, but this is a man who has no sense of responsibility for his platform. So, uh, you know, that's not necessarily new news. It's just nice to see that sometimes when he brings on these liars, they do get fact-checked, thanks to Jamie. So, thank you, Jamie. We appreciate you. Please do this more frequently, although I don't necessarily know if he's allowed to, but since Matt Walsh brought it up, you could fact-check me. He was fact-checked, and um, he was proven false. Shocker, right? The former president of the United States, Donald Trump, Elon Musk, others have spread stories, casting doubt on what happened, fomenting conspiracy theories. What do you have to say to them? It's, it's, it's really sad for the country. It's really sad for the country that people of that high visibility would separate themselves from the facts and the truth in such a blatant way. It's really sad, and it is um, traumatizing to those affected by it. Uh, they don't care about that, obviously. But it is, it's destructive to the unity that we want to have in our country. But I don't have anything to say to them. I mean, I, we have nothing. There, there would be no common ground to have any conversation with them. You just watched Nancy Pelosi speak out publicly for the first time after her husband was attacked in their home. And as you saw, she addressed directly these conspiracy theories that were spread by individuals like Donald Trump and Elon Musk. And for those of you who don't know what they said, let me give you a little bit of a refresher. Elon Musk, he tweeted in response to Hillary Clinton with an article claiming that Pelosi had gotten into a dispute with the attacker who happened to be a gay prostitute. There was zero evidence for this claim, mind you, but yet, he still decided to share this publicly. Now, Trump didn't necessarily, to my knowledge, push the gay prostitute conspiracy theory, which was very prominent online, but he essentially implied that this event was staged. As MSNBC reports, the former president acknowledged the violence by complaining about crime rates in San Francisco and Chicago. Soon after, the Republican did what he nearly always does, embracing a bonkers conspiracy theory and telling the public in reference to the alleged crime at the Pelosi household, the glass, it seems, was broken from the inside to the out. So it wasn't a break-in, it was a break-out. Complete nonsense. Now, he later insulted Nancy Pelosi, saying, I think she's an animal, too to tell you the truth, Trump said at a rally near Dayton, Ohio, on behalf of Republican candidates on the eve of the midterm elections before referring to Pelosi and the House impeaching him twice. Now, he said she's an animal, too. So the question is, well, who was he comparing her to? Well, he was talking about MS-13 gang members, one in particular who was a murderer. And he said that that guy's an animal and Nancy Pelosi is an animal too because she impeached me twice. So if he was a responsible political leader, 
he would tone down the rhetoric, but just a couple of weeks after her husband was attacked in their home with her being the target, he's referring to her as an animal. So I thought that this story was so despicable, specifically because of how quickly the right decided to start conspiracy mongering about the attack. I mean, it wasn't even 24 hours and they were already claiming that this was a dispute at a gay bar between Paul Pelosi and a gay prostitute. So we're to the point now where political violence is not only occurring and not only is it justified, but the right will just lie about it in the event it doesn't suit their narrative, in the event it makes them look bad. And that's really really depressing to me because you can't have a functioning democracy under these circumstances and to make matters worse nancy pelosi she's an individual who she's the speaker of the house right she's second in line for president after the vp obviously so she has a big security detail so if this can happen to her well this can happen virtually to any member of congress and this is what she talks about here and she blames the right for their bombastic and violent rhetoric you have a large security detail you have mm -hmm. great protection mm -hmm. around you if if this can happen to someone in your family it can happen to any member of congress's right. mm -hmm. family how does no amount of security is going to stop that? How does this stop? How does this not happen again? Well, you would think that there would be some level of responsibility. But what, what you see what the reaction is on the other side to this, to make a joke of it. And, and really, that is traumatizing, too. But nonetheless, forgetting them, uh, there has to be some healing process. And Democrats and Republicans you know, member of Congress, any, anybody could be a target. And we can't, there's no guarantee, but we can. In our democracy, there is one party that is doubting the outcome of the election, feeding that flame, and mocking any uh, violence that happens. That has to stop. Now, this particular segment stood out to me because I think about the ways in which members of the squad in particular are viciously attacked and targeted by individuals. Ilhan Omar faces constant death threats, as is the case with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And whoever the right chooses to make their target, death threats and hate and harassment follows as well. So things would improve in the events they toned down the rhetoric, but they're not doing that because the goal is for violence. The Republican Party has embraced violence. And this is a dangerous time in the United States of America. It's a dangerous time for democracy. It's a dangerous time for politicians. Now, Nancy Pelosi is correct that the right has embraced violence. A poll conducted at the end of last year by the University of Maryland and the Washington Post found that a third of Americans believe political violence is justified with 23% of Democrats, 41% of independents, and 40% of Republicans believing it's justified. Now, a CBS YouGov poll found that a majority of Republicans believe that the Capitol insurrection was a defense of freedom and not a coup attempt so we're in this situation where you can see a coup attempt storming the capitol where people died and that's still not getting republicans to rethink what they're doing what they believe who they look up to if anything was going to change it would have been after january 6th they would have thought okay maybe this has gone too far but they didn't do that and the conspiracy theories only continued to fester 
So this is why I say we are in bad shape as a country. Now, because we're talking about Nancy Pelosi, I thought that it would be uh, important to share an update on how her husband is doing because she explains that he was hit in the head with a hammer in two different areas and his skull was cracked, but it didn't penetrate the brain so he is going to be able to make a full recovery at some point, but she's going to describe how he is completely and thoroughly traumatized. And that's, you know, the same is true for her as well. She was the target of this attack, but let's watch. He's doing okay. He is, uh, it's the long haul, and, but he knows he has to pace himself. He's, he's such a, a gentleman that he's not complaining, but he's also um, uh, knowing that it's a long haul. He's so concerned about the traumatic effect on our children and our grandchildren. Uh, and we're concerned about the traumatic effect on him. But again, he's on a good path with excellent care from San Francisco General and his uh, healthcare providers. Has he been able to talk to you about what he was thinking when he woke up and found this person in, in the room? We haven't quite had that conversation because any revisiting of it is really traumatizing. It was hard, and that one of the hardest things all week was to go back into the house for him, uh, in the entrance, which is, of course, where, where the he was place. hit. And, of course, upstairs in the bedroom where that person made his entrance, shall we say. Uh, but um, so we haven't, and the doctors have said, you know, any, we don't want him to watch the news. We don't want him to be revisiting a lot of this at least not now, because mm. it will add to the trauma. And the, the operation was a success, but it's only one part of the recovery. The traumatic to a, a drastic head injury, it, it takes some time. Have, have you been able to, to listen to the 911 call? <clears throat> no. I haven't been able to listen to that or the body cam, any of that, no. I imagine when it is in the public domain is when I will have a chance to see it. But even then, the physician. Do you want to hear it? I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah. So this was very serious. And the severity of this attack, which was evident immediately after it happened, when we didn't have all, all of the details, that didn't stop the right from lying about this. That didn't stop people with large platforms, with high visibility like Elon Musk from lying. That's not stopping individuals like Donald Trump, who could be the next president after Biden, from calling Nancy Pelosi an animal after somebody had planned to kidnap her and break her kneecaps. I mean, I feel like people don't truly understand how unstable our political system is going to become if this becomes more frequent. And it's already becoming more frequent, but political violence does not bode well for democracy. So this is one of those stories that was very demoralizing to me because it really was a reminder about where we're at as a country and we're not in a good place. And that's not to say that, you know, um, things are going to get better after this election if Democrats win, because even if Democrats overperform the polls, there's still going to be a number of election deniers that will take power and continue to lie about our democracy. So we're in bad shape right now as a country. And this interview was really sad because it was a stark reminder of how bad things are and really how bad they are probably going to continue to get. So I'm sorry for the doomerism, but um, I just I wanted to share this because I think it's important. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook.
You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.